Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridget. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and the man we're talking to today is someone a lot of you will probably recognize. I know quite a few of my friends actually have his books, books like Cold Case Christianity, because today we're going to be talking to Jay Warner Wallace, and he's one of the more interesting Christian apologetics because he was actually an atheist for 35 years. He's not somebody... Uh, who went to university as a Christian and realized the need to defend his or her Christianity. He is somebody who actually didn't believe Christianity was reasonable for a very long time. And he was actually passionate in his opposition to Christianity and enjoyed debating his Christian friends. And what he found when he debated his Christian friends is that very few of them were prepared to defend what they believed as Christians. Now, his background is more unique because he came, became a police officer and then eventually he advanced to detective. And along the way, he discovered how one determines evidence for or against something. What sorts of evidence allows someone to determine whether or not something is reasonable? And when he decided to take a closer look at Christianity, what he did was he applied the same tactics he would to cold cases uh, in, in that, that the police station was working on, that the police force was working on, pardon me. He decided to apply it, those tactics to the ultimate cold case, the cold case of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, J. Warren Wallace was... was Nice enough to join us for a half an hour to talk through some of the big questions, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here in Canada, we've been seeing a number of mainstream publications publish articles uh, questioning whether the historical Jesus actually existed, which was quite surprising to most people who have, have considered this to be established history. Now, whether Jesus was divine and resurrected is a separate question, but you actually made a journey from someone who didn't believe so much in the historical Jesus to someone who did. Could you just tell our listeners a bit about how that happened? Well, I'm actually, I was somebody who just didn't think any of the supernatural elements of any kind of ancient story related to any kind of ancient sage, whether it be Jesus or somebody else, were true. So my personal position was not that I didn't think Jesus existed, but I didn't think the Jesus of Scripture existed. But I can tell you, I had an encounter with this issue years later as a youth pastor. First of all, when I was an atheist and examining the scriptures for the first time, I was using a, a technique that we use in cold case investigations to determine if a, an eyewitness is reliable. There's a certain criteria that we use, and we apply to anyone who claims to have seen anything. And uh, this this is really derived from our uh, jury instructions here in the state of California. So I, I just I took that template and I placed it against the gospel authors to see if they could pass the test for reliability. And so when I got once I got to that point, I I, I was kind of had to deal with well okay I I didn't doubt the the historical existence of Jesus, but I did doubt that anything in the Scripture was a reliable account of him. So once I was able to kind of work through that process, and I came to the conclusion that actually these accounts are reliable in every way we could possibly test them, uh, then I, I had to make a decision. But years later, as a, as a, a, a youth pastor. <clears throat> 
I'm talking 10 years later, um, I was leading young people uh, to trips to Berkeley where we would encounter atheists, and we did that on purpose because we wanted to train up our young people to be able to hold on to what they believed and to be able to encounter and discuss reasonably all the counterclaims. And in our state, uh, Berkeley is one of those schools where they're probably going to encounter those claims. So I I took them up there, and, and the very first atheist that they encountered who we asked to come in and to demonstrate for us why he thought Christianity wasn't true, took the approach you're discussing, where, and I had already kind of walked through it, uh, but uh, by students, not all of them had. And I remember it, it, it impacted them. And here was his claim. His claim was uh, that he was going to describe an ancient deity. And he began to describe what sounded very much like Jesus, you know, a, a, an ancient deity that was born of a virgin, born in a cave, uh, uh, heralded by a star. Uh, you know, he named a number of things, including the fact that this this, this ancient deity could uh, perform miracles and had 12 disciples and died to save the world and rose three days later. And, uh, you know, uh, they celebrated his resurrection on every Sunday with the Lord's Supper, and which they uh, you know ate bread and drank wine as his body and blood. I mean, they went all this detail. And, of course, one of our students, not having, not kind of seeing where this was going, um, said, well, this is clearly Jesus you're describing. And he said, no, actually it's not. It's an ancient Persian deity named Mithras who precedes Jesus by about 400 years. And this is the story that was stolen by Christians when they formed the mythology we now call Christianity. And he said, you know, the reality is that Jesus never lived at all. And in fact, if you were to go to, to Rome and visit the Christian basilicas, the early Catholic basilicas, you would find that in their basements they are built on the foundations of temples that were originally used to worship Mithras. Well, that claim is pretty rhetorically powerful, wouldn't you say? And I think my students were uh, shaken by it. Some of them were, at least, who had never heard this kind of a claim. And so it started me having to become a bit of an expert for my students on what the claims really are related to Mithras and any prior deity uh, or mythology uh, to kind of see if these claims related to the similarities in Jesus are true at all. And that's, that's really where most of my uh, time was spent. Uh, it really was years later when this challenge became uh, tangible for me as I was facing with my students. Now, what's interesting about your story is that rather than the more traditional research with the traditional historiographical research methods mm-hmm. that have led people from believing in Jesus as a historical figure to, to the Jesus of the, of the Bible, what's made your story particularly interesting is because the methods that you used and that you apply to determine uh, that the historical Jesus was, in your mind, the Jesus of the Scripture, are methods that you know people are familiar with from, from mystery novels and, and from law and order and things like that. How did you go from, from believing in the one to believing in the other? Well, think about uh, the nature of, you know, we often say, how do you ask the question, how do you know uh, anything at all? How do you know when something is true? What process can you use? And how could I know that a claim in the past related to someone like Jesus is a true claim? And and typically we would say that's an an area of history and whatever techniques are used historically to determine something is true, those are the kinds of techniques we would use to determine if this story is true. And that that is very much the case, but there's also another set of techniques we use to determine if something about the past is true, and those are the techniques we use um, all the time in cold case investigations. Think about the similarity. Uh, cold, case, uh, uh, cold cases like I have 
are typically um, a mess to begin with. That's why they're cold. And so I don't usually have an eyewitness who can tell me who's still alive, who could tell me what happened. As a matter of fact, the reports that I have to put together are usually written by somebody who uh, is describing an eyewitness account. And I no longer have access to that eyewitness. That eyewitness has died. And in fact, many times the author of the supplemental report, the police officer, has also passed away. So I have to build the case a different way. Now, what does that sound like when you've got an, an account of something that was happened in the past that was a claim by a witness who is no longer available to you and written by somebody who is also no longer available to you? It's very similar to what we do with the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So what I decided to do is to take a process that I think is valid. Let me tell you why I think it's valid. I think it's valid because this is a, an epistemological approach, you know, an approach to knowing something is true that we test every day in courtrooms across America. So it's not as though we have a, an active laboratory in which we test our historical techniques. We just don't do that. But we do have an active laboratory in which we test the kind of a forensic kind of a detective's approach that we take in which we present the case in front of a panel. The panel makes a decision about what they think is true. Often then afterwards the suspect will confess, therefore confirming that what they thought was true is true. And we can actually debrief that panel after the case has occurred to see what we did well, what we could do better. And we just get better and better and better at, this, at presenting cases the more we do this. And sure enough, that's uh, something that most people have some experience with. You know, a lot of us have served on juries. So when they hear these techniques, or they've seen them on TV, when they hear and see these techniques again applied to the Gospels, they, they kind of get it immediately. And it's, it's not as abstract and as kind of esoteric as some of the historical uh, techniques we might use. Now, one of the most compelling arguments that, that I heard you make, and I know that a lot of people have found it equally as compelling simply because it, it 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 really appeals to one's common sense is the idea that the eyewitnesses who record the accounts in scripture would have had nothing to gain by the claims that they were making in fact history bears out the fact that they they were often brutally persecuted the majority of them uh, the the eyewitnesses that is were murdered for making these claims and that nobody in history has ever engaged in a crime, at least not that we know of, without having something to gain, some sort of self-interest in making the claims that they were. Yeah, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Is it possible that somebody is crazy enough to make a claim that costs them everything and gains them nothing? Of course it is. Mm -hmm. But the more people you have doing it, the less likely it is. And so if, if one person was to make a claim... You might wonder about his sanity, or you might wonder why he would, but when you see it happen over and over again, we have a tendency to think that the eyewitnesses of the resurrection are limited somehow to the 12 disciples, when in fact, of course, we know that's not true. There's a whole bunch of folks in the upper room in Acts 1 who apparently were eyewitnesses of Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection, and from that, Matthias is picked to replace Judas, and even Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, there were uh, 500 eyewitnesses who saw Jesus all in the same day. So here's what I'd be looking for. In the second century, uh, the second generation, and the third generation of Christians, when they are persecuted, 
they're not eyewitnesses. They're just listening to the eyewitness accounts. When they are persecuted by people intent on turning them back to the Roman gods, they occasionally will turn back to the Roman gods because they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be punished. They don't want to be tortured anymore. And for example, you will see that Pliny the Younger will write to Trajan and say, I've been able to turn some back to the Roman gods. What you don't have is anyone in the first generation who were actual eyewitnesses who will ever be reported as turning back to a Roman god, uh, or any kind of god. And that's because there is no account. All we have are the rich history of accounts in which these folks were tortured. And remember, when I work homicides, it's the same as working any other kind of crime. There are only three motives for any homicide, only three motives for any lie, any theft, any crime at all. And that is you have uh, either financial greed, which is a big one, uh, sexual desire or relational desire. That, those are big sex and relationships. And the final one is power. And that last one is kind of nuanced, and it could be a catch-all for a number of other. But the, the point is here, we could look at the disciples and ask the simple question, what are they going to get out of this? Are they going to get anything out of it in terms of financial gain, in terms of sexual or relational prowess, or, or the, some power or respect or authority? Now, some would claim that that is, in fact, the case. The third category, people did get, as leaders of this movement, they at least had the respect of their fellow you know, Christians in the first century. But if you really start to think deeply about that and apply that to someone like Paul, who wrote most of you know, the New Testament in terms of the number of books, but if you apply that to Paul and ask yourself the question, what is he getting out of this when he started off as a, as a person of authority and respect amongst his religious peers, as a, a devout Jew who has been tasked and has the ability to draw papers to execute Christians, and then you're going to suggest that he's going to jump out of that position of authority and respect so, so he can suffer for 25 years, hoping someday to return to a position of authority and respect? I mean, it's certainly possible. I just don't think it's reasonable. And, right. and that's what, what we're really trying to do here when we're examining these accounts is to differentiate between what's possible and what's reasonable and realize that the standard of proof is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where I think we are with the, with the, with the uh, Gospels. Another point that, that you've made that I thought was very powerful, especially coming at it from the, the criminal conspiracy angle, is that the consistency among the eyewitness reports uh, and the consistency of, of the stories told by those who actually uh, walked with and met the historical Jesus, that they were simply too far apart to coordinate any sort of a conspiracy. Well, the other thing, too, you have, you have five attributes, right, that are usually present in a successful conspiracy. Now, we, we, we all know that there are, at times, uh, successful conspiracies. But when they are successful, they have these five attributes in their favor. And I realized this after working conspiracies for years as an investigator. Because once you know how a conspiracy is constructed, you know how to deconstruct it. And you need these five things. Number one, you need to have the smallest possible number of co-conspirators. And so, of course, two people can lie and keep a secret better than five, or 25, or 55. Um, you also want to have to hold it for the shortest possible amount of time. So it's easy to tell a lie and keep a secret for a day. It's harder to do it for a year. The third thing is really critical, though. You have to have excellent communication between co-conspirators, because if one of you guys gets stopped and has to give a story to authorities, that story better match the others uh, exactly. Uh, you better know if, say, for example, somebody else has already confessed this is a lie, why in the world would you want to die for it? You'd like to be able to call and find out, hey, did you already give this up? I won't you know, waste my time here if you already have. Uh, also, the third thing, the uh, fourth thing you've got to have is hopefully really close familial relationships 
relationships that are lifelong relationships, it's much less likely that a son is going to rat off his mother, although that does happen more than, say, a, a mother ratting off his, her son. I hate to say that, but that's true. Um, so, I mean, you want to have family relationships. And the last thing is you, you want to have no pressure. Uh, if, if no one's asking, then guess what? No one's going to give it up. The more people are asking and the more uh, tenaciously or violently they're asking, the less likely that this succeeds. So as I'm looking at the conspiracy claims related to anything, I don't care what it is. If you're suggesting that there's an entire sector of the federal government that's been in a conspiracy for 50 years, I'm already hesitant to, to believe anything like that because I just know how unlikely that really is. And by the way, if you think you know of a successful conspiracy, well, then it wasn't successful by definition. It has to be, you know, I have to get away with it in order for it to be successful. Right. So that's the problem I have looking at the, uh, the eyewitnesses of the, uh, of the resurrection. Uh, if this is a conspiracy and they're all lying, I want to know what's driving them, what is the motivation, and number two, how do they, do they have these five things? And it turns out, when it comes to the first century disciples of Jesus, that all five of those things are missing. And that's the problem. I mean, is it possible? I always say, yeah, anything and everything is possible. It's possible I'm still sleeping right now and I'm not even having this conversation with you. But that's not what matters to us. What matters is reasonable. And the idea that this is a conspiracy of vast proportions for 2,000 years is just not reasonable. Now, get, getting through all of that, uh, one of the, the main responses that, that you're going to hear, and I'm sure you have, and I certainly have, is that, well, it's not reasonable to say that somebody rose from the dead. It's not reasonable to say that somebody turned wi uh, water into wine. It's not reasonable to believe in all of these miracles. And, and to a right. degree, of course, that reflects somebody's broader worldview and whether they think that only the physical exists or whether the metaphysical does as well. But you've, you've built a, you know, quite a strong and quite an appealing case for why it's more reasonable to believe that the Jesus of the Scriptures existed. So how do you respond to people who say that in spite of everything you've put forward, it's still unreasonable because of all of these, these miracles, essentially, that took place? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you're right about what, what, what causes us to use the word unreasonable. That's what it comes down to. Well, why is it unreasonable? Well, because we know that miracles don't occur. They're, they're, okay, there you go. So what it comes down to is a presupposition about the impossibility of any miracle that keeps anyone from, you know, keeps a lot of people from, and me, I was one of those guys, by the way. Mm -hmm. I was a very committed philosophical naturalist, and I looked at the possible explanations for the resurrection. In the book, I think I cite seven or six or seven of these, uh, and six of them are, are naturalistic explanations for the empty tomb and for the claims of, of the disciples. And one of them, of course, is the Christian explanation. And why would I ever conclude that the, the one that is the Christian explanation is reasonable, given it, it, it requires a resurrection. Well, part of that is simply this. I, I looked at the other six, and they all have fatal flaws. I mean, fatal flaws I can't control. Uh, they just don't work. Now, the, the, the seventh explanation, the, the Christian explanation, has a flaw also. It requires a resurrection. But why, don't I think, why do I think it's fatal? Because I come in with a worldview that denies a resurrection. Now, if, if the thing we're investigating is whether or not the resurrection is reasonable, but we're beginning with the presupposition that resurrections are unreasonable, then we're not really being fair about the investigation. You're at least going to have to suspend your presupposition long enough to look at the evidence. And as I did that, I realized that the one fatal flaw in the Christian explanation was me. And it was my worldview that I held against anything supernatural. But also, at the same time, as an atheist, I realized that I did believe in some extra-natural things. Right. 
I believed in Big Bang cosmology, which means that whatever starts the universe has to itself be made up of something other than the stuff we see in the universe. And that's the stuff that we call natural. You know, space, time, matter, the laws of physics and chemistry, whatever it is that, that is the uncaused first cause of the universe, is non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material. So it's something extra natural. And I was very comfortable with that. I just didn't think it was a personal deity. But if, the, if it is a personal deity then do you think that he could walk on water or raise the dead or do anything? Of course, everything else then becomes reasonable once you go back to the very beginning and ask yourself, what is the most amazing miracle ever recorded in Scripture? It's in Genesis 1. If I can create everything from nothing, it seems that everything else is a subset of that, is something that is much less involved and requires much less of me, if I can do that. So if, if an atheist were to come up with, uh, come up to you and essentially say, I, I cannot accept uh, the biblical Jesus because miracles don't exist, in a, in a sort of a, a short form, how would you begin to respond to somebody like that? Well, I think there are, I would say there are lots of things that your naturalism will not explain. And since it has no explanatory power in so many areas, it, maybe there's a problem with the explanation itself, naturalism. So, for example, if I'm going to stay as a naturalist and try to explain the origin of life, you're going to end up saying something like, well, we just don't know yet because we've tried everything and we can't figure out how it originates. And we've been doing this for about 50 years, by the way. Okay, and if you're going to stay as a naturalist and try to offer an explanation for mind, which we all seem to have, and free agency, which we all seem to, to you know experience, Try to get that from naturalism. I mean, the most committed naturalists, like Sam Harris, deny both mind and they deny um, free agency. Right. Yet we seem to experience these, even when we're reading Sam's books and trying to decide if what he's saying is true. <laughs> so it's very hard to, to walk through the world and not experience these things. If, if you're going to tr stay as a naturalist and explain the fine-tuning of the universe, you're going to find yourself defaulting to some extrapolation of some multiverse theory, for which we have no evidence, but at least it solves the problem, which is that your naturalism cannot explain this. This is the problem we have over and over and over again. So when you see that the explanation I held on to for years really doesn't have much explanatory power in the things that matter most, and by the way, I wrote about this in God's Crime Scene, um, then, then you're really kind of stuck maybe having to analyze your, your commitment to, to naturalism. And, and there are lots of atheists out there, and Thomas Nagel is one of them, who is starting to, to question the limits of naturalism and explaining the world around us. Now, what we're seeing here, and, I, and I've asked this question uh, to a, f a few Christian apologists, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is that, you know, in this, this 21st century really, uh, you know, hotly contested ideological era where, you know, the culture wars are louder than ever, what uh, some polls have shown is that the traditional questions uh, about Christianity, so where the Christianity uh, used to be confronted on the basis of what we've just been discussing, for example, the, the historical Jesus versus uh, the biblical Jesus, and, and things like, you know, how can a good God allow evil, and all of these questions that, that are complex but are not particularly uh, difficult to answer once, once you really buckle down and accept the, the fact that there's a lot of things we don't know. But on the flip side, what we're seeing is a lot of people rejecting Christianity for purely personal reasons. So what, what you find is that somebody will say, well, actually, uh, I reject Christianity because why would God not let Joe and Bob get married? Uh, I think it was uh, Mark Driscoll who did a poll and, and found that the, the number one question being asked, essentially, by people who are considering Christianity is, uh, when can I take my pants off and how long can I keep them off? 
and that's providing a sort of barrier to apologists who have, uh, as yourself and, and, and the folks at Biola University and Stand to Reason, come up with very refined answers and very, uh, very compelling apologetics to the traditional questions. How is Christian apologetics sort of evolving to confront these, these new questions that don't get to the root of the matter, but somehow have to be parried in order to get to the questions that matter the most? Yeah, a couple of things about that. Number one, um, we always have a tendency to think that in our generation, the need for you know um, addressing the claims of Christianity relative to naturalism are, are somehow shrinking, and now the issues are more cultural, usually based in some kind of sexual conduct. Interestingly, yesterday, uh, Pew uh, released a new poll. Uh, they, they're the ones who take the poll every year to see what, where we stand every couple of years, where we stand in terms of people and their religious belief. You know, how many people are still claiming to be Christians? What percentage is growing? Of, of, and it turns out they've discovered in the last few years the number of Christians who claim no religious affiliation. That's the group that's growing the fastest. We call these the nuns. When they look at the survey, they check none when it comes to religious affiliation. But now they've gone back to those nuns and they've asked them, so why did you leave? Um, why did you? Why are you in this position? They found that the vast majority, seventy-eight percent, said they were part of a religion before becoming a nun. N o n e s, the nuns. But interestingly, when asked why they left their faith, they gave certain categories of answers. The largest percentage, nearly fifty percent, of the people who answered said it was based on intellectual doubt. Again, it's back to the same issues that evidentialists like myself talk about. Only 20% said it was about the fact they didn't like the positions or behaviors of those people who were involved in organized religion. Only 18% said it was because they were looking for a more open-minded, they might claim to be spiritual but not religious. So, I mean, it turns out that the largest group of people, when asked, why did you leave, still give answers in that area of either intellectual or scientific skepticism. Their views related to um, how to answer these important worldview questions had evolved in their own terms from uh, religious view, uh, responses to more uh, intellectual, rational, they would say, uh, Enlightenment-era kinds of answers. So I do think the work is still cut out for us to be able to make the case to compare our worldview with the worldview we call philosophical naturalism. That's, that, that's still there. At the same time, of course, that means that for the 50% who said this, the other 50% are broken down into smaller groups, but some of them also need you to answer the questions related to behaviors and how it is we as Christians might respond lovingly to these other sets of behaviors. So I think that the work is there for both of us, those of us who are doing more evidential apologetics and those of us who are doing more cultural apologetics. Now, people hear a lot of bad news all the time about, you know, the state of Christianity and the culture, you know, the new challenges we're facing. But you work on the front lines in, in developing uh, apologetics and coming at things from new perspectives, and you speak to audiences of, of people that contain plenty of doubters all the time. Uh, what sort of encouraging things could you tell our audience ab about how effective apologetics are actually in persuading people uh, to, to recognize the truth of Scripture? Well, you know, a lot of what we do is, is, and both sides would, would, would claim this, I think, and, you know, we've heard, well, you Christians are always indoctrinating, you're young. But what we're really trying to do, like every family does, is we're trying to make sure that we, we inoculate our kids from bad ideas. 
And when we decide something, is everyone does this, by the way, no one raises their kids against their values. Right. All of us raise our kids under the umbrella of our values. And we do that also as Christians. We're no different than anybody else. And what I've discovered is that the more reasonable we are in describing why it is we believe what we believe, we are then preparing our students for that first challenge before they ever see it. So, for example, I'm about to give a talk this week, and I speak at churches all around uh, America, and I'm doing a talk this weekend in front of a church group on the problem of evil. And I have to say the same thing every time I give this talk, and that is, if you've already suffered great evil, my kind of reasoned response to the problem of evil and the existence of God, I think will fall on your ears in a, in a way that's very different than if somebody who hasn't yet experienced evil. When you've experienced evil, you don't always want a rational, intellectual response. You just need to be held. You're experiencing a, a, a series of emotional, uh, volitional, and intellectual uh, responses to the problem of evil. So my case for the problem of evil, I think, is, is not all that powerful. But I can tell you this. If you think carefully about the problem of evil before, before you ever encounter evil, before you ever experience evil, you will have a, a, a better ability to kind of find its place in, in your life as a Christian. And you'll be pre better prepared, I believe. And I see this all the time with students. Now, why I'm telling you this is that I've discovered that as we prepare students from about junior high through high school, we see them do great things in college. I'm involved in a number of, of, of programs that do just this. Our Rethink conferences through Stand to Reason are now three of them this next year, one in Dallas, one here in Costa Mesa, one in uh, Alabama, which uh, help prepare young people, high school age, youth group uh, age uh, students, to understand what it is we believe and why we believe it. Also, I work with on the faculty at Summit Worldview Conference in Colorado, where we spend seven sessions. I do eight sessions, one here in California, also a year with those students where for two weeks they are immersed in a Christian worldview. Well, if you track the, um, the progress of those students after they've had that kind of training, they do far better than students who haven't had that kind of training. Then they hit the crisis point in college and they're looking for answers. And because they had, don't have those answers readily available, they are uh, impacted deeply by secular ideas and, and by other uh, forces in their own desire at, while they're at college. And they succumb to those ideas at a far greater rate than, than students who really already see the problem before it's coming and already know how to respond to it before they ever see it. One final question is that a lot of people listening will have had discussions in which they felt stumped and have tried mm -hmm. to you know, make the case for Christianity by getting caught off guard with arguments much like the one you initially mentioned about Mithras, etc. Right. What are some resources and tips that people you know, listening to this interview can walk away from? Where would you advise they go for the best resources? And, and how would you start somebody off who says, I want to get more involved in Christian apologetics so I'm better equipped to respond to Christianity's critics? Yeah, I know it's, it's it's tough because we have a tendency to say, well, if you read this book, or if you do, and it's not it's not really about that. I mean, we've all written books. I've written books, and and it's always tempting to say, well, this book will solve the problem. And of course, that's just not the case. Right. What has to happen instead, I think, is we have to change the way we think about our religious walk, um, our our walk as Christians. You know, for some of us, that just simply means we go to church on Sundays. And I think most of us would say, well, look, if that's all you're doing is going to church on Sunday, you do need to rethink what. You, 
what you think the Christian life is about, because it's not just about that. It's about so much more that you're missing. Well, I would also say that it's about so much more that, that you're missing as an intellectual, because the rich history of Christianity is both evidential and intellectual. And we've just gotten lazy in this generation, and we want to experience everything. We're far more likely to rest on our experiences than we are on how we think about certain things. Most of us, for example, can recall how great our uh, worship experience was last Sunday, but don't ask us too many questions of, you know, about theology or about apologetics because we're not prepared. So the question is, you, everyone is spending their time on something today. They have already prioritized what they're going to do with their uh, disposable income and what they're going to do with their discretionary time. Now we've got to decide to reorganize that and to reprioritize that. And so you can imagine that if you wanted to be a, a, an expert on the NFL, but you refuse to watch the NFL or track the movement of players in the NFL, you're not going to be a great expert on the NFL. Right. And the same thing is true here. So the question becomes, how much are you willing? And by the way, the resources are out there. I mean, if you just Google Christian apologetics, you will see all of our sites in the first three pages. And you can actually walk through some of those. And, of course, the more, the more famous those of those that exist, um, probably the more reputable they are as well. And, of course, you've got to vet through this. And the great thing about it is the more you read, the better you'll be at discerning truth from error. So my question is, if you're going to read a news site today for an hour, would you be willing to read about your Christian faith for an hour? If you're going to read a sports or watch or listen to a sports podcast or watch a sports show on TV, would you be willing to listen to a Christian podcast for that period of time? It really is about us reprioritizing where we spend our discretionary time. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.